listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking together at verses 16 and 17 today. On Reformation Sunday, we launched a five-part sermon series called The Five Solas. On October the 31st of 1517, Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg, Germany, sparked what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Now again, Luther did not nail the five solas to the church door at Wittenberg. The five solas are actually a way of summarizing what the Reformers taught in the 15th and 16th centuries. And so what they do is they give us an accurate summary of what the Reformers were teaching, preaching, uh, and articulate the issues that they were compelled to protest uh, at that time. We started the series um, on October the 31st with Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Scripture alone is our highest authority. It stands alone as our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And so it is not Scripture plus other things. Uh, it is Scripture alone that is our final authority. And while we have a doctrinal statement, uh, and we would appeal to certain creeds, for example, and things of that nature that kind of summarize for us uh, what we believe, uh, it is all grounded and based in Scripture Alone. Last week we looked at sola gratia, or grace alone. Salvation is purely a gift from God. We can't earn our salvation. Uh, it is Christ plus nothing that equals everything. And again, you try to add anything to Christ, whether it's your self-righteousness, your best efforts, uh, your uh, personal reform, whatever it may be, then you have what is called a polluted gospel. It's Christ plus nothing, grace alone. Today we are looking at sola fide, faith alone. The scholar Jason Dusing, who is the provost at Midwestern Seminary, said how one understands the relationship of their faith in Christ to their obedience to Christ makes all the difference for living a life of joy and God-glorifying freedom. So if you are on this track that says, I've got to strive in every way to somehow, some way, be good enough, do enough good things so that I can ultimately someday, hopefully, earn my salvation, uh, that's, that's soul-crushing many times. Because if you're like me, there are a lot of days where you feel like, well, I've taken three steps forward, but, and I've also taken two steps back. And so you're always wondering, am I in good standing with God? I'm not so sure. And if I were to die today, I'm not sure that I would spend eternity with him. And that's a difficult place to be in. So today, sola fide. Next Sunday, Jace will cover for us solus Christus, uh, that is Christ alone. And then we will, uh, Lord willing, conclude this series with sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And that will segue into our Advent series as we approach Christmas. Uh, here we are, just weeks away from Christmas. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are some days that the last two years feel like 10 years, uh, and then on other days it seems like about six months. I don't, I don't know. It's just been a, a weird couple of years for sure, but uh, we are looking forward to all that the holiday season brings 
uh, and all of that. Now remember, while these five solas are a summary of the main issues that sparked the, the Reformation, they are clearly Bible doctrine. Very important to us today. This is not just a history lesson, okay? In fact, we would describe these as non-negotiables. These are first-tier issues for us. Vitally important. Now, I do want to go back and kind of give you some historical context once again. I think it's important for us to understand uh, what was happening there some 500 uh, years ago. Martin Luther had been a monk for five years when in 1510 he went on a pilgrimage to Rome. Uh, from where he was in Germany at the time, across the Swiss Alps, if you can imagine, in the, in the winter months, to, uh, to Rome. He left Erfurt, Germany in October, along with another monk, on this long walk uh, to Rome. I just, while we were singing a moment ago, just out of curiosity, I put it into Google Maps to see how long it would take to walk today from Erfurt, Germany, to Rome. And it said roughly 12 days, something like that. So, uh, at any rate, that's, that's what they did. It was the custom of the monks when they were on a journey to walk silently behind one another uh, in kind of a, kind of a, a silence or a, with, with kind of a, a meditation or a solemnity to it. The night before they arrived uh, in sight of the holy city behind the hills that separated them from Rome, Luther's religious devotion rose to what he would describe as almost ecstatic heights. You can just imagine he'd look forward to making this trip to what he would describe at that time as the holy city of Rome. He believed thoroughly in the remission of sins uh, that he should win at the holy places in the city of his faith. This is what he was hoping for. And if you've ever studied the life of Martin Luther very much, if you watched a documentary, a, a biography of his life, you know that he was a guy who lived much of his life in anguish. He was tormented. Uh, because of his sin. It was a, a, a real struggle for him. And so he was hoping uh, that by visiting these, uh, these special places, these holy places in the city of his faith, that uh, he would uh, be resolved of some of that. His mind was fastened on the great traditions of the fathers, of his fathers in Christian history. Well, the next day, as they came over the top of Mount Mario, he saw spread out before him the glorious city of Rome. He's overcome with joy, and he falls on his knees, and he cries, Hail, Holy Rome! Luther followed his friend into the sacred city with high expectations about what he would experience on their visit there. They stayed in a monastery, but while there, they were shocked at the indifference with which the monks went about their routine services. Luther was a, a, a real pilgrim as he anxiously and joyously sought out the great church shrines, all of these various places that many of them uh, can still be visited today. He visited the catacombs and felt the strange influence that comes from the memories of the martyrs buried there. All of his religious quest focused on his desire to be released from the fear and the terror of his sin. That's what he was hoping to accomplish on this visit to Rome. And so he visited the shrines, not only for the sake of his own soul, but for the souls of his family and friends. In fact, he was said to uh, have, have thought at that moment, he was tempted to wish that his own father and mother were dead so that his prayers might release them from purgatory. What a strange perspective. Well, the custom with pilgrims to Rome was to go to the great sacred stairs. You may have seen this. Uh, you can actually, there's video you can Google it and you'll see that there are uh, committed people uh, who literally are crawling on their hands and knees up these stairs, sometimes practicing what's called self-flagellation. They're like 
beat themselves with reeds and these little tiny whips and things of that nature. Uh, these stairs lead to a room uh, which contains relics of the saints. And Roman tradition told Luther that the steps were those upon which Jesus had walked the night he appeared before Pilate. Well, Pope Leo IV had granted an indulgence, remember indulgences, had granted an indulgence of nine years for every step uh, in this set of, of, of stairs. And so there's 28 steps for a total of 252 years. Well, for centuries, uh, devout individuals have climbed these steps, believing in the benefits uh, that the church offered them for doing so. Well, Luther had walked the pathway of penance as a monk for five years, and this was, uh, he viewed this as kind of a climax for him uh, to go up these stairs and do penance there. Well, you fast forward some 35 years later, preaching in Wittenberg, Luther told some of his experience in Rome, and he related how as he reached the top of the stairs, a doubt regarding the power of the practice had come to his mind, and he thought to himself, who knows if this is even true? Well, the whole problem of his life, since he first felt the call to religion, was the problem of sin and the acceptance uh, 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 being accepted by God. That was what he really struggled with, uh, being accepted in the sight of God. He believed so thoroughly in the perfect righteousness and justice of God, and he felt such anguish about his own sinfulness that he just couldn't understand, couldn't reconcile how anyone could possibly be justified by God. He struggled with this. Well, as he studied the book of Romans, he wanted to know what Paul meant here in chapter 1, verse number 17, when he wrote, The righteous shall live by faith. All of his life, he'd been taught that confession of sin, penance done for sin, good works for God earned a person salvation. So the question, the burning question of his soul was how is a person saved from their sins? And that brings us to sola fide. Faith alone. In the 16th verse of Romans chapter 1, uh, this book is described by, by many uh, great theologians even as the Mount Everest in the mountain range of Christian theology. One day, Lord willing, I'm going to have the opportunity to preach verse by verse through the book of Romans. It may take us six years, but we'll, we'll get it done. Um, but at any rate, in verse number 16, you find what is probably a familiar verse to many of us. The Apostle Paul again is writing and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17, we find that phrase that Luther just seemed to struggle with. For in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And while those two verses certainly played a key role in the life of Martin Luther and the Reformation itself, these two verses really are in many ways the core of Paul's letter to the Romans. And in many ways, we could say, are a summary of the entire New Testament. Critically important. I want you to notice in verse number 16 that the Apostle Paul, he starts with a negative. Paul writes that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Dr. Jason Dusing again, he offers several reasons why Paul would write that he is not ashamed of the gospel and why we shouldn't be as well. 
The gospel is good news. That's what the word gospel means. The word gospel means good news. Uh, now, we, we, we like to, to share good news typically, right? Uh, I mean, you, you ask one of these grandparents around here, hey, tell me about your grandkids. They'll, they'll be glad to talk to you about their grandkids, right? You, you get good news. You want to share it naturally with other people. Well, we have the best news known to man in the gospel. The gospel is good news. And that's why Paul writes here. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news of how Christ died for our sins. Christ in my place. That is, that's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. It's good news. It is from God's power. It is from God's power. Notice again what he writes there in verse number 16. For it is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel is not, hey, you do these three or four steps and then you add this to it and then you do this and you have this particular and you do this particular thing and then that along with the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and you'll be good to go. That's not the gospel. Again, that's a polluted gospel. He says the gospel is the good news and it is from God's power. That number three, it is effective to save. He says here, it is the power of God for salvation. For salvation. We're going to talk about that. Uh, an interesting conversation to have. If you're out at the coffee shop or whatever the case may be, and, and you begin a conversation, uh, a good question to ask many times to kind of figure out maybe where someone is spiritually. You say, hey, what, what do you believe about like salvation? How is a person saved? And from what are we saved? To what are we saved? How does that all work? Uh, it's an interesting conversation. You'll get a lot of different answers. Some of them close, cl close, sadly close to the truth, but, but not quite there. Some completely off the chart wrong. No earthly idea. No clue. A lot of times you'll get sad answers like, well, I hope, I, I, I think I might have... There's a lot of guesswork involved. Now, the gospel is effective to save. And then notice it, is a, it saves everyone who believes. Again, Paul writing there in the 16th verse, he says, for salvation to everyone who believes. This is where the idea of faith comes in. This faith. And again, we said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then it is the gospel for all peoples. For all peoples. I remember having a lengthy conversation when I was in seminary in one of our theology classes about the word all in Scripture. Some people would say all means all, and that's all all means. That's not always the case in Scripture, actually. Sometimes all means all without exception. Okay, like I could say all of you. All of you. That means everyone in the room today. That's all of us. Okay? Many times in Scripture, all means all without distinction, meaning all kinds of people. Y'all are all different. Some of y'all got hair and some of you don't. Some of you have blue eyes and some of you have brown eyes. Some of you have green eyes. Okay? So some of you are older than others. We're, we're all different, right? So if I say hey, the, the gospel is, is for all Okay, I'm talking about all kinds of people. And Scripture makes it clear that they will come from every, the four corners of the earth, every tribe and tongue and nation. And if, if you can't tolerate being in an international setting, you're going to be real uncomfortable someday. I'm just going to tell you. Okay, I don't know exactly all that that's going to look like. 
But I do know that God is redeeming people from every part of the world. Every part of the world. So it's for that reason that the Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now let's move further and let's unpack this concept, this truth of sola fide. In a time when truth is viewed as relative and belief in Jesus Christ is many times mocked as too simple, we need to not be ashamed of the gospel. Stand firm for the truth that faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ is what saves what saves? Let's talk about that word salvation for a moment. The concept of being saved. Salvation is spiritual deliverance. Salvation is spiritual deliverance. In the original language, the word there, it gives the idea of safety from peril or danger. In, a Greek world, it was, uh, in the Greek world, it was used of saving something from disaster. An example would be the coming of night uh, may save an army from destruction. The idea of salvation was deliverance from destruction. And that's why many times in the first century world, there was this thought that the Messiah would come and he would save us. He would set up this earthly kingdom and he would save us from our oppressors. He would save us from Roman rule, from their oppressive hand. That's why in Luke chapter 1, verse number 69, when John the Baptist was born, his father Zechariah said, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So the Jews believed that God would send their Messiah who would save them from the oppression of other nations over them, fundamentally. In Matthew chapter 1, verse number 21, the angel told Joseph, you remember, you will give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So we know that Jesus fed the hungry. Absolutely. He healed the sick. He brought sight to the blind. He brought hearing to the deaf. He taught uh, the people the word of God. But his real purpose, his ultimate mission was to die so that we could be saved from our sins. Delivered. That's why one of the clearest pictures of salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus. As the people of Israel are delivered from Egyptian bondage. It points to what Scripture teaches us, is that when we turn from our sin to faith in Jesus Christ, we trade in our prison garments of sin for robes of righteousness. We're set free. I once was bound. I once was fettered. But now I'm free. It's deliverance. It's spiritual deliverance. Salvation is first and foremost forgiveness of our sins so that we can be reconciled to holy God. It is the means by which we are declared righteous. Now today, so many times salvation is presented as joy and happiness in your life. And certainly it involves that. Uh, there is a deep-seated uh, joy uh, in the life of a believer that many times we can't describe. And we would say we experience that in spite of our circumstances. In fact, I, I would say it this way. Uh, when you're going through the valleys of life and you're dealing with some of the struggles of life, the way that you respond to those things is, is one of the most powerful testimonies that, that you can possibly give. And people many times will look at you and go, how in the world... Can you have this outlook? That's not to say that we don't grieve or that we don't cry or that we don't hurt or any of those things. But as the scripture says, we do so but with hope. 
We do so with hope, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. So the question, how can I be accepted as a sinful human being by a holy God, has been replaced today many times with the quest of self-fulfillment, self-respect, self-esteem. It's all about me. You find the strength within yourself. You turn inward. Look at yourself. And that brings up the question of what does this idea of belief mean? Belief. Belief is to trust or rely on or have confidence in. It is the same word translated faith or trust many times in the New Testament. The idea is that you have confidence something is true. Christians believe that what God has said is true. Deliverance from our sins is based on trusting that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death. In other words, in my place, in your place, as punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Spurgeon wrote, the mere knowledge of this will not save us unless we truly trust our souls into the Redeemer's hands. I always say it like this. Knowing this morning how to get to Durant, Oklahoma, or Durant, however you say it, okay, does not mean you are in Durant. Okay, you may know how to get there. You may be able to give me instructions or anybody else here instructions, directions on how to get there, but that doesn't mean you're there. There's a lot of people today who know how to get to heaven someday. They have the head knowledge, but they've never placed their faith and trust, their belief in Jesus Christ. Just knowing how to get there doesn't put you there. Uh, I'll never forget, uh, this was several years ago now, when there was a little coffee shop right over here, just, uh, I guess, just north of the church over here, a couple streets over by the uh, post office. And uh, we'd gone over there one day to have a little staff meeting, and uh, they had some, uh, I guess, antique uh, tables and chairs in there. You might remember that. And uh, we went to, to sit down, and I remember looking at this chair that I was going to sit in, thinking, that's a pretty old chair. But I went ahead and put my trust in it. I put my faith in it. <laughs> I knew it was a chair. I knew it was standing there. looked like it was, you know, I mean, would hold me up. And so I sat down in it. And it did pretty well for a while. Until about 15 or 20 minutes into our conversation, I, I heard this pop, pop. You know what I'm talking about? That, that, if you've ever been in that, that situation, you know what I'm talking about. It's like your life kind of flashes before your eyes. And like, there is no way. Even with my cat-like reflexes, that I am going to jump up out of this chair before this thing gives way. I'm about to hit the floor. And I did. I mean, pop, 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 things fall apart. You know. Now, I claimed I was going to own the coffee shop after that, but uh, I didn't think that would be the Christian thing to do. Thankfully, I, the only thing that was hurt that day pretty much was my feelings. Um, actually, a couple days later, I was pretty sore. But the truth is this. You can say that you believe in something, but until you are willing to place your faith and trust in it, it reminds me of the, the, the age-old story of the great Blondin, the tightrope walker, who would, who would do these amazing things. Like they would stretch a tightrope across these great expanses, and he would walk across them, and he would do crazy things when he got out in the middle, and he would even push a wheelbarrow loaded with bricks across this tightrope and everything. And then at one point he came down and he said, how many of you believe that I can do this or I can do that? And people would raise their hands. Oh, we believe you can do it. And then he asked, he said, how many of you would be willing to get in the wheelbarrow? See, that's a different story. You get a lot of people today who will tell you flat out, oh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But they have never really placed their faith and trust in Him. 
So belief here in Scripture is not just talking about a head knowledge. Like you believe you're sitting in a worship service this morning. No, we're talking about actual belief, putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And, and that's where the whole idea of faith comes in. For in it, verse 17 says, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This faith is used some 244 times in Scripture. The original language, it's a conviction that something is true. And as a result of your conviction, you accept and trust it. John Calvin wrote, to have faith is not to waver, to vary, or to be up and down. Faith is constant assurance and perfect confidence. In the New Testament, it's used especially of reliance upon Christ for salvation. That's why we sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. In Christ alone. So we see here, salvation begins with faith. The Greek literally reads, from faith to faith, or uh, out of faith into faith. Our righteousness is the result of our faith and continues by faith. The thought is that we are saved by faith and continue to live by faith. So the initial step, we might say, the entrance to salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Remember, we said last week, when we look at what is really the heart and the core of the five solas, that is faith alone, its strength is found in grace alone. The grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. So we come to the place where we turn from our sin to faith in Jesus Christ and and, and you are forgiven through, only through, His atoning sacrifice. Just a few chapters later here in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as a gift. Remember, we've talked about that. It's not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes who comes in faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Eight years earlier, Paul had written to the churches of Galatia because they were confused about the relationship of salvation from our sins and and the good works we do. Much like people today, confused about these things. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So salvation begins by faith. It continues by faith. It continues by faith. The life that you now live is by faith in Christ. So from the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, you then begin a life of faith in Him which continues throughout all of eternity. Faith is the starting point of our salvation and the course that we continue to follow throughout our life as we walk with God. Remember, Abraham left his home based on the promise of God when he was, what, 75 years old. For the next 25 years, he lived by faith in the promise of God as he waited for a son. And then for the next 75 years, he continued to walk by faith. So Paul writes here, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice in your Bible, most of your Bibles anyway, that's 
That, that, that phrase is found in quotes. That's why he says, as it is written. Whenever you see that in the New Testament, that is typically referencing an Old Testament text. So where is that found? Well, it's found in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 4. And if you go there, you'll discover that the prophet Habakkuk, about 600 B.C., was complaining to God that the Babylonians were filled with pride, but were not being punished in the way that he thought they should, and he wanted to know why God didn't do something about it. You ever been in that place before? Where you're just kind of, you know, my grandma used to call it in the mully grubs, and you're just kind of moaning and groaning to God that life isn't fair. It appears like, you know, bad people are prospering while good people are not and all those sorts of things. And maybe you, you even inject yourself into the story and you're like, you know, I've been doing all the right things, God, and look what you've done. You know, that kind of thing. I, I think that's a little bit where Habakkuk was. Well, living by faith means that we continue to trust God. We continue to, 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 to trust him with the future and all of those things. And so God tells Habakkuk that he's right. The Babylonians are filled with pride, but he needs to trust that God will ultimately do what is right. It means I trust God for everything in my life, no matter what circumstances happen to me in my life. Now, a person may, upon one act of belief, be justified in the sight of God. Salvation is by faith in the death of Christ for our sins without any good work which we have done or will do. That's why Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's at the heart of salvation. John chapter 19, verse 30. Just before Jesus died on the cross, just before he breathed his last breath, what did he say? He said, It is finished. Do you suppose he meant there everything for our salvation was complete? Or did he mean that I have done my part, now you guys got to do your part? And we meet somewhere in the middle. No, no. The, The word that he expressed that day literally means paid in full. Paid in full. It's an accounting term. It's done. The account is cleared. It's zeroed out. That's why justification simply means you're made just as if you'd never sinned. Just as if you'd never sinned. The sin account for you and me when we place our faith and trust in Christ is zeroed out. It's done. It's finished. Luther wrote this way. He said, since faith can reign only in the inward man and since it alone justifies, it is evidence... It is evident that by no outward work can the inner man be justified. Therefore, the first care or concern of every Christian ought to be to lay aside all reliance on work and strengthen his faith alone. So we see here one stream of thought is man-centered, the other is Christ-centered. One is subjective to you, the other is objective. One looks inward to me and to you, the other looks outward or upward to Christ. Gospel looks to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, upward to Christ as our high priest, where Christ pleads his merits before the law of God as the basis of the repentant sinner's acceptance with God. So, how do we apply this? This is to be more than just a history lesson. This is to be more than just a a, a doctrinal study, as important as that is. How is it applied? Number one, faith alone is contrary to works-based legalism 
And it's also contrary to easy believism. Because when you want to add anything, anything that we do, faith alone says no. It is faith alone. And when we want to drift to a a minimalism, or what's called an antinomianism, that says it doesn't matter how we live, faith alone also says no. Because we are saved by faith, from faith to faith. Faith alone. It's contrary to both works-based legalism and easy believism. Number two, faith alone is not a novel idea. In fact, the Old Testament articulates salvation through faith alone as it looks through a glass dimly to the revealing of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And then the New Testament articulates salvation through faith alone based on the fully revealed work of Jesus Christ. Again, that's why we often say what seems to be concealed in the Old Testament is gloriously revealed in the New Testament. And we can point to picture after picture after picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures. Not a novel idea. Faith alone is still a gospel distinctive. It's still a gospel distinctive. Now, there are differences on a variety of terms. The divide remains on the word alone many times. Faith alone. Oh, certainly faith, but faith plus. Faith plus. No, it's faith alone. Faith without any mixture of self-righteousness or good works is how we are saved. And so then what does that do? Well, faith alone should produce humility. Should produce humility. The doctrine declares that salvation from God is a gift so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. See, salvation by faith alone frees us to no longer obsess on the self and instead to focus on Christ and others. It's in Christ alone that my hope is found. And then faith alone propels us to be missional. I will want others to know this great love that God has shown to those who will put their faith in Christ. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Based on the foundation of Scripture alone and ultimately to the glory of God alone. In November of 1515, Martin Luther began to teach the book of Romans to his students at the University of Wittenberg. As professor of theology, he labored long and hard in preparing his lectures, and he was captivated. He was challenged regarding what Paul stated about justification by faith. And as he studied the text, Luther came to understand that the phrase, the just shall live by faith, meant that salvation came by faith in Christ alone, and that good works were the result of our faith, not the reason God forgives our sins. So he wrote about this discovery. Remember, this is a guy who lived much of his life in anguish, just struggling with this whole concept. So this is what he wrote about his discovery. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped, That the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. 
He said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. Now it became to me an inexpressible, sweet, and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. The gospel itself. Martin Luther was finally free from the anguishing guilt of his sin for which he had agonized and struggled throughout much of his life. You may be here this morning and you'd say, Pastor, I can in some ways identify with old Martin Luther. There's some things in my life, there's some things in my past, there's some things in my life right now that I'm ashamed of in ways you can't even imagine. I think in some ways we all kind of share that sentiment, don't we? I certainly have things in my past that I'm not proud of, I'm ashamed of. But isn't it so good to know that by the grace of God, through faith alone, in the grace of God alone, what Jesus Christ has done for us, God's Word tells us He has removed those things as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more, to be counted against us no more. That's the freedom that comes in Christ. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. If we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment this morning. This is a time of decision for us, and it's our belief that every time we come together as we have this morning, every time we open the Word of God and we are receptive to what God has to say to us by His Word, by His Holy Spirit, we are responsive to it. It means fundamentally we all make a decision, whether you verbalize that decision or not. You will leave here today making the decision that you will take the truth that you've heard and apply it to your life. My hope and prayer is that it stirs within each of your hearts an abounding joy and peace and confidence. Not in anything you have done or ever could do, but a complete and total confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary the freedom that comes. There may be some here today who would say, Pastor, I'm, I'm still searching. I'm still seeking. I'm still thinking that maybe somehow, some way, I can be good enough. It's my prayer today that you would come to understand that even on your best day, you can't be good enough. It's not about your righteousness. It's about Christ's righteousness put to your account. There's incredible freedom in that. So if you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do that today. If you'd like to know more about making that decision, taking that step of faith, I would love to meet with you, love to show you from the Word of God how you can know that your sins are forgiven. You can experience spiritual deliverance, freedom that comes 
by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Father, today we express our utter dependence upon you. Thanking you for your love and your mercy and your grace. That your word tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The just for the unjust. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Lord, do a work in our hearts and lives as we now together express our utter dependence upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.